In this episode of Influencers, Mondelez CEO Dirk Vandeput. The pandemic has changed the way the consumer look at their spending. I think you need to offer consumers a better quality mm -hmm. today because you want them to say it's worthwhile. Even if prices have gone up quite significantly around the world, consumption has not been affected so far. Hello everyone and welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer and welcome to our guest, Dirk Vandeput, who is the CEO of Mondelez. Dirk, nice to see you. Thank you. So uh, lots of stuff to cover with the company, the products, the environment. Um, but what I'd want to know first of all is just remind people about the recent history of Mondelez. First of all, we're here at NASDAQ and this is the 10th anniversary of Mondelez, but of course you used to be Kraft. So tell us about what happened 10 years ago? Yes, 10 years ago, um, Kraft was a company that had sort of two pieces. One was the more snacking-oriented, more international piece, and the other piece was the more sort of main aisle, classical food groups, US, largely US-based. And so there was an idea that it could be better to split that up in two companies, and that the value of the two pieces would be more than the value of the combined uh, company. So one third remained Kraft and then merged with Heinz. And the other one was rebranded towards uh, Mondelez. And that's largely snacking. It's a pure play snacking company uh, with a very big international footprint. And the name Mondelez was, uh, was a contest between the employees. And two French employees came up with uh, the idea of Monde Delicieux, which means delicious world. Mm and they made it Mondelez, so that's where the name comes from, basically. Mondelez, yes. right, got yes. it. Pardon my accent, that's bad. Um, anyway, tell us about some of the brands that are part of your portfolio then. Well, the, we, we are the biggest player in biscuits globally, and of course Oreo, which is the biggest uh, cookie in the world, but we also have here in the US, Chips Ahoy, Ritz, Tate's premium cookies. Um, and then around the world, in most countries, every country is sort of the biscuit or the cookie that's part of the culture, and most of those we own, like France has LU, LU, uh, and, and you can go around the world and you will find our brand. And then in chocolate, we are uh, number two, almost number one, and, uh, and there probably the brand that you will know the most is Cadbury, uh, but we also have Milka, which is from German origin, um, and then we have many, many local chocolate brands, uh, also in the different countries around the world. And recently we have expanded into uh, what we call baked snacks. That's more pastries and uh, more uh, health bars. And so you will know the Cliff brand, which we just acquired. Um, and then we still have uh, a gum and candy business also. Um, one is, uh, for instance, Halls in candy or Sour Patch Kids and uh, Trident in, uh, in gum. So it gives you an idea of the product portfolio. All right, and what is your take right now on the business? It's just such a confusing time, a challenging time to be the chief executive. Yes. How are you feeling about things and how are you positioning the company? Yeah, so I've been the CEO for five years, of which three have been abnormal years, two years of pandemic and now uh, a year of inflation, war, whatever you want to call it. Um, the strange thing for us is that as it relates to the fundamentals of the business, 
So are our consumers eating more of our products? Yes, they do. Our volume growth is, is quite strong. Are they prepared to pay the higher prices for our products? Yes, they do. Uh, do we see a higher frequency of consumption? Yes. Do we see them eating more uh, every day? Yes. More consumers. So the fundamentals are really good. For us, the, the problem is sort of in two fronts. The first front is that it, it's a very volatile world from an operational standpoint. Supply chain disruptions, um, workforce issues, uh, geopolitical issues. And so it's not easy to run the business and supply products to the market. And then the second part for us is that um, we have 80% of our businesses outside of the US and that is in foreign currency. So in every single country we're doing really well, but if you translate our profit that we make in those countries to US dollars with the strength of the US dollar, that makes the, the results uh, in US dollars kind of flattish versus last year. Uh, and so that's, that's a little bit the unfortunate uh, situation. Great results in constant currency, but the translation in US dollars is not that exciting this year. But that's one year out of a number of years. This, the way the dollar is this year is not going to happen every single year. So hopefully it's going to reset and it's going to help us going forward. I want to ask about inputs, but, but first I have to ask you, and I'm sure you've considered this, moving the headquarters outside the United States. Has that come to the fore? That has come to the fore uh, because our European business is bigger than our US business. Um, but it's, I, I, I don't know if it really changes uh, anything for the company. It, yeah, it, it could help us a little bit with how we are perceived uh, from a stock perspective. Um, but the costs involved and the disruption in the company involved is probably not worth it. We looked at it and we came to the conclusion that it's not worth the effort, basically. And then you move over there and then the dollar goes the other way. Just <laughs> same, right, exactly. <laughs> Get whipsawed. Yeah. Talk about those inputs in terms of um, the, the food products that you, the chocolate and all the other uh, products that you have to buy to make uh, your biscuits and cookies and chocolate and candy. Yeah. What, what's, what are the worst ones or the most difficult ones in terms of pricing right now and, and what are the hard, are there any that are particularly hard to source or ones that are uninterrupted how does that work yeah so um, the, for us the the biggest input has just become milk before it used to be cocoa and wheat cocoa for the chocolate wheat for the biscuits um, but because of the the enormous price increase we've seen in milk now in dollars what is the most expensive input for us is milk, and, and milk prices have been going through the roof. Um, wheat also has been going up because of the war in the Ukraine, but then transportation costs, packaging costs, which are linked to oil, energy costs. Um, so it's, it's sort of across the board, and even very small ingredients that we might normally buy $50 million of suddenly go up 100%, and now suddenly there's a cost of $50 million that suddenly appears somewhere that you didn't even know it was going to be a problem for you. So you get constantly surprised by what's going on. The inflation in input costs, I've, I've, I've worked in Latin America, I've seen it there, mm. but I would never think that on a global basis we would see 12-13% increase of our input cost this year and very likely it's going to be the same next year. At this stage it looks like it's going to be the same. So. Uh, it, it's a bit of an ongoing cycle, which is, which is my biggest worry, that it's a one-off. But if it keeps on going because it's, it's 
some things have come down, but others come up. Now the Labour Party is going to start to play a role because people will want to see their salaries go up. So we're getting in a little bit of a sort of uh, a vicious circle, I would say, or a vicious cycle, and that's that's probably my biggest worry. Translating that in cost, in, in price, and then charging to the consumer. The pandemic has changed the way the consumer look at their spending, and and suddenly taking care of themselves, indulging a little bit, having a biscuit, having a chocolate, living more or, or being more at home, enjoying home life, uh, that truly has changed the consumption and, and what people are prepared to, to pay for it. And, and so for, even if prices have gone up quite significantly around the world, consumption has not been affected so far. Mm. Uh, that's a bit of a surprise. You would normally expect that your consumption would suffer a little bit. Our categories don't tend to go down in a major way when there is a recession. It's, it's a small out-of-pocket, and so people tend to, to sort of continue to buy our products. But we don't see, it's in fact, we see an acceleration of the volumes of our products, which is very strange, I would say. So you're able to raise prices a bit, and you're seeing increases in volume. That's good on, yeah. on the demand side. Are there things you can do, Dirk, besides raising prices, though, to mitigate those costs? Yes, yes, of course. Um, the first area where we always go is, is can we lower costs somewhere else? If we're presented with a, an increase of one of our ingredients, what else can we do? And that's our first go-to. But to give you an idea, um, in a typical year, we call it net productivity, we aim for a 2% uh, reduction of the cost as they were last year into this year. Then there's inflation that comes on top. And usually that inflation kind of balances out more or less um, and you have to price a little bit but that inflation on your input cost that you're seeing between net productivity and being pricing a little bit put away but this year we're looking at 12 13 percent inflation against two percent net productivity there is no other way than to price basically so that's one thing we do the other one that we do is in certain countries uh, consumers want to stay fixed on a price point they want to pay one dollar for their pack of oreo i say something or three dollars here in the US, and they really don't want to see that go above uh, three dollars. So then you need to reduce the amount of product that you have in the pack. Um, mm -hmm. It's called PPA, price pack architecture, yeah. to keep that price point. So that's the second area, playing around with how much money or how much uh, product is in, in each pack, changing the pack size, uh, also pr uh, spending less on promotions. We don't pull back. In fact, we increase advertising because we want to make sure that consumers have our products still top of, uh, top of mind or our brand still top of mind. And um, we, we also uh, tend to um, see what other areas of cost reduction we can, we can have that are not uh, uh, regular uh, for us. But that's the way you deal with it, basically. Yeah. And then I'm sure there's some people like, well, we play around with the formula for Oreos. No. But you don't want to do that, right? No, we don't, we don't want to do that. In fact, I think you need to offer consumers a better quality mm. today because you want them to say, it's worthwhile, mm. my dollar, which is, uh, which is hard earned and I have a lot of costs that are going up. So for instance, Milka, our biggest European chocolate brand, we have just increased the amount of cocoa in the brand and increased the quality and the taste in the middle of, of what we, I think we can call a recession these days uh, because we think it's important to do that. Right, right. So the stock over, say, the past five years has underperformed the market, but over the past two years, it's outperformed the market, though it's still down. 
Yeah. So explain that to us, number one, Dirk, and then can you make the case to your shareholders or prospective shareholders why things are looking good for Mona Lisa stock going forward? Yes. Well, um, over the last five years, I would say the, the stock price went from about 40, and then at its peak, it was about 69. So that's in line um, with uh, the market, more or less, I would say, over five years. But then recently, it has, it has dropped uh, to 60, below 60. And that's driven by that exchange rate uh, against the dollar mm. issue that I was. Um, now, Mondelez is, is, a, is, is a little bit of a longer term play. We, we're a company that grows quite nicely in food. We're around the world. We're a global player. Um, so you, you can't really sort of get in and get out in three months. But if you look at a longer period of time, we are constantly increasing our geographical, geographical footprint. We are innovating with our brands. The consumption of our brands is going up around the world. We're translating that in continued increasing investment in our brands. That also translates in a profit that is growing five, six, seven percent a year. Our EPS over the last uh, five years has gone up about 13, 14 percent a year. So I think if you sort of are in it for the longer term, I think it's a stock that, that's really worthwhile holding. But there will be these moments like this unique year where the dollar is so strong that you're going to get uh, hit a little bit. But I, I, I don't think there's any reason to get very worried about it. And all the fundamentals, as I was explaining, are very good. And as soon as, as the exchange rates start to go a little bit the other way, you will see, you will see a big run up. Uh, so uh, for me, I, I highly recommend the stock. I think we're well positioned for the future. And who do you consider your competitors, your biggest competitors then? Well, it's, it's all the, the other players that are in snacking. So you probably know the, the big chocolate companies. Uh, that would be uh, a Hershey or a Lindt or a Mars. Mm -hmm. uh, in biscuits, less obvious because it's a more fragmented market. So there's many local players around the world. I mean, there's players in Indonesia and in India and Europe and so on. Um, and then more widely uh, for investors, it's all the CPG uh, companies. And often we are narrowed down to the food companies as our closest mm -hmm. peers. Uh, so those are really are competitors for us. Yes. When you talk about this uh, global footprint that you guys have, and it must be um, difficult to keep track of everything going on around, the, around <laughs> yeah. the globe. I mean, how many countries are you in, for instance? 160. That's yeah. just crazy. And, and, you know, something can flare up and be problematic for your business, either on the supply or demand side. Yes. Um, you've been doing business in Russia, and I think you're still there. Talk to us about that decision. Yes. Um, so. Um, first of all, to deal with these issues that come up around the world, you need good local management. And we've been gradually doing a shift from very centrally organized to much more locally focused. And I always say that the, the, the top of the pyramid in our company is the local teams and the rest of the organization is to help the local teams be the heroes and be successful. So I hope that they can deal with the issues and that they reach out to the center when they need help. In the particular case of, of uh, Russia, we, we also had a significant business in the, in the Ukraine. So um, our two plants there were hit and, and partially destroyed. We're rebuilding those plants. Our people have returned back to, to work in Ukraine. Um, 
then we were confronted with the decision regarding Russia. Um, we sell uh, chocolate and biscuits. In some countries, the biscuits are considered as part of, of, a, of a normal diet. Many countries, biscuits are a breakfast uh, item. And so we do feel that we uh, supply products to the normal consumer in Russia. We have about uh, 3,000 employees. We have about uh, 30,000 suppliers locally, mainly farmers that supply us with wheat and everything. So we, we found that, and, and we're apolitical as a company, we found that it would be um, a bit of a harsh decision to leave all that uh, uh, overnight. And uh, we decided that it would probably be better to see what happens and not support the war in any way possible. We've stopped doing any investments in the country, no more capital investment. We don't do any advertising. Uh, we're making the country completely standalone from a supply chain standpoint. And yeah, if the, the situation gets worse, we might have to take other decisions. But that's how we came to the decision where we are today. Interesting. And has, is there any demand at all in Ukraine or is that business completely no, no. Uh, I mean, to give you an idea, Ukraine would be a, a, a country for about $200 million a year in sales for mm. us. Uh, when the, the war started, that was reduced to a million dollars that we could ship in there. But recently we've had months of uh, 16, 17 million dollars in the Ukraine. So we're getting back to where we were before, basically. So that has been, that has been good to see. Uh, we've been able to give everybody their jobs back. Uh, so our people are happy. Uh, we have lost nobody uh, due to the war so far. Mm. What happened also is that a lot of people fled the country and what was incredible to see was that our people in Poland and so uh, welcomed our employees in their houses. We had people living in our plants that we gave a home there. We had kids living in a chocolate plant. Uh, they, they quite enjoyed that, I, I would say, <laughs> at least in the middle of such, such difficult circumstances. Yeah. Um, so it, I've been touched by how much our employees in other countries have helped uh, our Ukrainian uh, employees. Going around the globe a little bit more, Dirk, mm -hmm. what is your situation in China? In, in China, our, our business is doing well. Um, we're uh, largely into biscuits and in gum. We don't have a chocolate business there. Um, we've been growing uh, very nicely, high single digit. We've been increasing our market share there for many years. And that has continued. Financially, China will look just like any other year for us. We've seen a shift. So biscuits, when there is lockdowns and everything, get higher consumption. Gum, which is an on-the-go consumption, went, went, uh, went down. But the balance has been normal growth. Um, from a, a political or geopolitical standpoint, we've had no uh, real interference or any issues with the government. Um, so it's been for us in China business as usual with heavy lockdown situations, disruptions of our supply chain, um, people sometimes in their house for 50, 60 days in, in one stretch that they were not allowed to leave their houses. So it's been tough to operate, but it's, it's nothing that feels like we're, we're sitting uh, on something that's going to deteriorate very, very fast. All right, since you make, produce and sell gum and we're talking about Asia, I'm just curious, can you sell gum in Singapore? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, good answer. Um, so also um, wanted to know about um, some questions you've had about deforestation in places like Ivory Coast and Ghana. Um, and I know that's something you had to address. Can you talk about that, Dirk? Yeah, yeah. So um, cocoa, which is the main ingredient for chocolate, 
um, is only produced in a number of countries around the world. And there's two countries, Ghana and Ivory Coast in West Africa, which supply the majority of cocoa in the world. And the way cocoa grows, it grows under the primary forest. A cocoa tree is a small tree that ideally has some shade coming from the primary forest. And the, the farmers involved in Ghana and Ivory Coast are, are very small farmers who don't have a great income. They, um, the, the, the problem is bigger than deforestation. So what, what you have linked to this is small farmers who have a low income that need, um, need help in getting a bigger income. And how do we help them? They, they often have their kids work on the farm instead of going to school. And so there's discussions about uh, child labor. And then on top, they sometimes cut down the forest, which leads to deforestation. So what we do is we have a, a, a program on the ground where between NGOs and ourselves, we reach out to about 200,000 farmers. We educate them on um, the education for their kids, how important that is. We help them get into other crops so that they get a wider income. We uh, uh, ask them not to do, de do deforestation and they get a premium if they don't do that and if they are part of our program. We monitor their farms through satellite to make sure that there is no deforestation taking place. But it's 200,000 farmers living mm. in, in the rainforest, so it's, it's a big effort for us to make that happen. But that's the way we're trying to tackle the problem. And prices of cocoa have done what? They've been largely uh, stable, except for uh, at a certain stage, which we fully support, the Ghana and the Ivory Coast government um, decided that they would charge what's called a living income uh, charge on top of the normal cocoa price, which then goes to those farmers to help them with their income. We have, we have supported that, we're totally in favor of that. But the cocoa price has been going up and down a little bit so that, f that it's for $400 a ton. It sometimes didn't have the desired effect. But overall, I would say in the last two, three years, compared to everything else, cocoa is relatively stable. Yeah. Here's another curious uh, global question. Um, is Toblerone one of your brands? Yes, okay. Yes. So Swiss chocolate, right? Yeah. There's no cocoa plants grown there. How did the Swiss become so famous for chocolate? And where do they make Toblerone, for instance? Yeah, it's made in, in Switzerland. Okay. Um, so typically what happens is the cocoa beans are harvested. Mm -hmm. They're bought by uh, cocoa traders. And then we buy the cocoa from those traders uh, in Switzerland or in the UK or in the US. Mm -hmm. uh, they ship it to the different countries where we then process it and make it into the basic materials for, for chocolate. So that's how the Swiss can become famous for the chocolate. They're famous because they make a very good quality of chocolate but they also have their unique alpine milk that goes with it. And the combination of the cocoa and the milk makes for a really excellent chocolate. And this goes back, obviously, way, way before Mars. Oh, yes, I mean, yes, yes. Hundreds of years, even? Yes, yes. Yeah, it's just a funny thing, yeah. I love Toblerone. I didn't realize that was um, the Zermatt. Yeah, 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 right? that's on the... Uh, and this yeah. become, you know, a selfie picture. You go there, and it's like <laughs> and, people and, take, they, yeah. hold the, they hold the candy bar, and people, yeah. Instagram moment. <laughs> Can you tell us about um, food safety and Mondelez and how you make sure food is safe for consumers? Yes. Um, well, the, in, in food safety, you, you first, there's a design phase where you design how the food is going to be produced and how the ingredients are going to be sourced. And within that design, you need to make sure, first of all, that the supply chain that you have 
is a, is a safe and reliable supply chain. So that's an important part of how do you set up your plants, how do you set up your supply, uh, how's the design of your product, of your production. But then there's a phase where you um, need to check what's going on on an ongoing basis. So there's a number of tests that you do uh, in the plants on a regular basis where you check the product. You also do that in your warehouses, you also do that in the store. And as soon as you detect that something isn't quite right, you need to really intervene as fast as you can. Because a plant is, is, a, is a big entity, there's a lot going on, and so you cannot assume that everything will be always perfect, and so you need to be on top of things. You need to check the cleaning, you need to check the changing of product, that, that, that you clean all the lines in the right way, and constantly be on top of it. That's the way we, we guarantee the, the food safety, basically. Yeah. Shifting gears, you mentioned your acquisition of Cliff Bars. Mm -hmm. Why did you buy that company and how's that going? It's very recent, um, but it's going well. This uh, year? Yes, yes, mm -hmm. it's going well in the sense that you always have a plan and we're above that plan so far, but it's a few months, so I, I wouldn't call this yet uh, a, a victory. Um, but um, the, the reason is that the whole bar segment uh, which is big in the U.S., everybody here knows all the different types of bar that are available, they have a very big health connotation, that whole segment, and it's growing faster than the rest of, uh, of biscuits and chocolate. And so it is a segment that we were not present in, and so in the past years we've been increasing our presence. Um, and it's going to be a market that keeps on growing here in the U.S. The interesting part is that in the rest of the world this segment is only starting and it's, it's mainly in Anglo-Saxon countries like the UK or Australia, but it's starting in Brazil, it's starting in India, because there is this health connotation plus very functional benefits, gives you energy if you're, if you're doing sport and so. So it's a segment that's growing and, and we want to be uh, part of it and, and Cliff was the biggest player in that segment, so that's why we thought we can take it, we can keep on growing it in the US and we can also bring it international, so that's the reason. You know, decades ago, and you know this a thousand times better than I do, you had like, you know, 320 SKUs, set it and forget it, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the SKU churn and, and buying new product and product categories like yeah. Cliff is part of this, but coming up with new SKUs is just, every brand has to constantly do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, Oreos was the same thing for decades, and now, of course, they're all different variations, yeah. seasonal variations. Um, how do you stay on top of that and how do you make the decision when to deploy capital and when to expose the brand to different formats like that? How yeah. do you do that? Yeah, we do that. Um, well, you, you try to talk a lot to consumers. The reason why you see this proliferation, particularly in taste or in, in flavors, in, yeah. in food, is the millennials. It's all their fault. Uh, they're, they're <laughs> Most things are, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Right. They, they like to experiment with food. They like new flavors. They don't want to have the same thing. They're much more adventurous. Than, than, than I am, I'm not a millennial. Um, and so they are the ones that have triggered this need for, give me something that I haven't tasted before, that surprised me. And that's how you keep your business growing. So, of course, that, that is in the, in the lab or in, in conversations, then you need to make sure that the taste is a success. So you go through a whole test and learn phase where you put some, a little bit of product in the market, you see what the reaction is, do people like it, don't people like it? And then when you feel that I've tested this enough and I really think that I'm sitting on something big, that's, that's when you put the investment for a line or for uh, uh, investment in advertising. And, but you try to make sure that you test, retest, uh, redesign until you have something that you feel good about that it's going to be a success.
Have you done a pumpkin spice latte Oreo yet? Uh, no, no, but we do have uh, some pumpkin spice, uh, spiced uh, Oreos, not, not the latte part, but right. we do have oh, the, pumpkin. Right, right. Pump, okay, and we have a spicy chicken Oreo in, in Oh, yes, China, right, yeah, right, yeah, I read about that, I think. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, that's, that, there's a cost to doing that, but all companies have to do this now to survive, yes, right? Yes, yes, it's, uh, I mean, it it's sometimes gets a little bit out of hand, but if you look at how you grow a food brand like Oreo these days, innovation and coming up with new and exciting um, sort of uh, uh, SKUs that spike the interest of the consumer has become a huge part of the equation. Right. It's not only flavors, it's uh, we had Lady Gaga design an Oreo for us uh, and so on. And What was in that? That was, that was um, they had uh, from her, the cover of her latest album, it had a green filling that reminded of that, that album and, and, and it has uh, unique flavor that she liked, basically. Oh, I miss that. I'll have to look yeah. that up. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about you a little bit, Dirk. You were trained as a veterinarian, correct, mm -hmm. from Belgium? Yes. Yeah, so how did you go from Belgium and veterinarian to running a global food company in Chicago? Yeah, <laughs> I wish I had known that that would happen to my life, but right. that didn't. Um, um, what happened is, while I was studying as a veterinarian, I got involved in, in something, a phenomenon in those days was called pirate radio which were pirate radios. And, and, mm -hmm. um, yeah. and I was trained to be a scientist or, or uh, in the medicine, uh, medical profession. But I enjoyed a lot being involved with people. And I was more on the backside trying to run the pirate radio. And so when I graduated, I said, well, this business thing is not too bad at all. This is not like, uh, 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 like medicine. And so Mars at that stage, we are big in pet food, was recruiting a veterinarian to be the head of their public relations department. So I entered business like that. Mm. Then I thought marketing was interesting and I asked if I could study marketing, which they helped me to do so. And, and so I, I, I only worked one year as a small animal vet in Belgium, basically, mm -hmm. served in the army after that. And after the army, I joined Mars and kept on going from there. And since Mars was a food company, that's how I ended up as a veterinarian in a food company. That's how it happened. And so Chicago, how long have you lived there? Cubs, White Sox, Blackhawks, Bulls, are you into any of that stuff? I'm a European, so baseball is a, is a hard sell on me. I have to, I have to be Me honest. too. <laughs> okay, go ahead. But football, I, I love. I really love. You like the Bears? Uh, yes, yes, I do. I like the Miami Dolphins. I used to live oh, okay. in, in Miami, which is a very painful uh, team to follow. Yeah, right. Um, and uh, I, I also do like basketball uh, mm -hmm. quite a bit. And so, yeah, I enjoy it a lot. Chicago is a, is a great town, right. great food, uh, yeah. great people. And final question, Dirk, what do you see as your legacy? What do you hope people remember you as when you're done working at Mondelez? What do you ho hope to have accomplished? Uh, I, well, I hope that the people in the company will say that uh, he, he helped us develop as, as humans. Uh, he had a real impact on our lives. Uh, he, professionally and, and personally, this was a great period of my life and I've grown, I enjoyed it, it was fun. Um, and he has put us all on the right track to, to really be satisfied with the life that we live. So, yeah. Dirk Vandeput, CEO of Mondelez, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts 
or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Surworth.